Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, I realized recently that, um, I, you know, I've lost sense of time. No, no sense of time anymore. But we're basically halfway through the year. And it's been a weird year. It felt appropriate that we should do a halftime report. Yeah, I mean, so much has happened. I I almost feel like time has slowed down. Like like two or three years has been stuffed into six months. Even the sell-off, people were saying that it was like 2008 squeezed into six weeks. And I think the recovery was like, you know, the same deal. Everything just seems to be so condensed. And with the lockdown thrown on top of that, uh, I think everybody's very disoriented. But um, certainly this first half was a lot of ETF storylines have, have developed Lot to chew on. So help us make sense of what's been going on. We figured we'd lean into Bloomberg Intelligence and your analysts, Eric. So we've got your team who's basically had some observations, both for the the first half and then kind of looking ahead for the second half. So who's all joining us? So we have from London, or I think you might be in Greece already, but uh, (laughs) Athanasio Serafagas, otherwise known as Tom. Um, James Seifert, who is in uh, Summit, New Jersey, and Morgan Barna, who is in D.C., but was just in California. We're all over the place, but, you know, we are constantly in in Twitter DMs and IBs talking about these issues all the time. So basically, I asked them each to bring the big issue they thought was the big deal from the first half and also maybe something they're watching in the second half. So um, there's going to be a lot to chew on today. And just uh, for people listening, you know, we have all four of us and there's some vacations and whatnots coming up. So we recorded this right in the middle of June. So uh, we're going to go over some numbers. They could be a touch stale, but I think directionally everything's going to be exactly the same. This time on Trillions, the ETF Halftime Report. Morgan, Tom, James, welcome to Trillions again. Hey, guys. Hey, Joel. Good to see you guys in this Zoom. Uh, (laughs) This is my closet. (laughs) Don't you guys think it has a Blair Witch vibe in there? I do. Because all you see is the light come like kind of up in his face, and he just looks like he is scared and like hiding from something. Like It just feels like a horror movie going on. If, if you see me looking into the corner, please, please call for help. Um, okay, James, I want to start with you. First half, what do you want to talk about? What was your big takeaway? Uh, I mean, the big takeaway is the the Fed jumping into the ETF market and buying ETFs. So they basically stepped in and said they were going to be buying fixed income ETFs. Um, we call it kitchen sink day on March 23rd. Basically, Jerome Powell just said he was going to be buying things left and right. Uh, and ETFs were added to that description. As of June 10th, we know that they have somewhere around 5.3 billion in ETFs and we or 5.5 billion in ETFs. Um, they're all fixed income, mostly investment grade, but there's some high yield ETFs in there. And we're also obviously watching to see which ETFs are specifically buying. And they're going to release that report um, on a monthly basis. 
So we have the most recent data as of May 19th. We won't know exactly when the June report will come out, but the, they tell us basically everything you could ever want to know with what the Fed is doing in the ETF market. A lot of people, when they hear the Fed's buying ETF, they think, oh, are we Japan now? The Bank of Japan owns 80% of the ETF assets there. Just for perspective, that $5 billion would be 0.3% uh, of all ETFs, but it is 2% of corporate bond ETFs, and it's about 10% of all the flows into corporate bond ETFs this year. So in that niche, the Fed is becoming a bigger player. And I think if you looked at the top 10 holdings of like an LQD or HYG, the Fed would be on the cusp. It might be, you know, flirting with the top 10 holder of these funds already. And there's still, you know, some time to go. So one other observation I had about what James is talking about is the portfolio that the ETFs the Fed uses was really advanced, in my opinion. Normally, when an institution like a Yale or a, I don't know, New Jersey pension uses ETFs, they use like one or two liquid ones you know, for liquidity purposes, they're afraid to swim away from those big liquid ones. And the Fed had, what, 13 to 15 ETFs, some most people would never heard of probably half the list. And I think that really speaks to BlackRock holding their hand. I mean, they, they are definitely working with someone who knows ETFs. And so their portfolio to me looks a lot more like an ETF strategist than it does like an institution. Yeah. And the other thing to highlight here is, as I mentioned, they're given, they're being very transparent here. Like we knew they were going to be somewhat transparent, but when they released this report at the end of the month, of May, granted, maybe they were vocal about this, but I didn't think they were going to be as transparent as they are. We can see the trade level data, what time they bought these ETFs, who bought it, all these different things. So they're telling you everything that happened. Granted, it's you're looking back and it's not live, but you can see exactly what they're doing in the marketplace when it's after it's happened. Okay, Eric, you've got a couple topics from first half that I think we we've talked about a couple times. But I just feel like it is the zeitgeist of the of the year so far. Do you want to talk about them? Yeah, I think I'm becoming associated with the ETF jets at this point. Um, I've, been, I've, I've been obsessed, even addicted, but I admit it. So at least there's that. Um, that you have this, a problem. Yeah, I do have a problem. Um, this ETF jets, it's just really, I don't know if it's lack of sports, but it's really just captured my attention at big time because, you know, when we look at flows into Vanguard and BlackRock, it's, you know, they take, they hoover in money like giant vacuum cleaners. So anytime a small ETF is able to just sort of go from obscurity into the big time within a couple weeks or months, it's fascinating. It's, it's uh, rare. And in Jets' case, let me give you the numbers here. Um, what stuck out to me was the flow streak. It took in money 70 straight days before finally seeing an outflow. 70 days of straight inflows is absurd, especially for an ETF that had $30 million at the beginning of it. I looked at the longest streaks of inflows of all ETFs, and Jets would rank number three at 70 days. Uh, two Vanguard, BNDX and VWO, were number one and two with 85 and 83 days. But the whole top 10 was Vanguard except for Jets. That is how unusual it is. Um, I also think it's interesting that Jets was so bought up after being so bad Normally, when you see retail sort of pile into a theme ETF, it's because it's having its shiny object moment. It's having a good performance run. This was the opposite. This was people buying something beat up. I mean, the, the uh, valuation on the airline stocks was really low. It also speaks to this whole Robinhood uh, situation that everybody's obsessed with. Robinhood being like the face of the day trading retail investor who's bored at home with no sports. And I think there's a case to be made, although, you know, Morgan ran the numbers and they don't have a lot of assets. If you look at Jets, we would estimate maybe five to seven percent of Jets is Robinhood. 
but they represent other people on other platforms. So you have a bigger Robinhood effect, and that's definitely bigger than that 7%. So they're definitely buying it. You know it's retail because of how small the trades and the flows are. Um, and then this retail thing uh, is interesting because it, it basically puts all these small investors on the opposite side of a Buffett trade. You know, Buffett sold his airline stocks on uh, early May. Since then, Jets is up, up big. As of today, it's up about 30% since he sold, um, but it had a rough week last week. So we'll see where this goes. I also think this brings into the fact that Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports has been really into the airlines. And we looked, um, he put out this sort of hype video that was to an ACDC song. Since that video came out, Jets' volume quadrupled and hasn't looked back. So I do think with Robinhood, Dave Portnoy, there's, there's Jets sits in the middle of, of a bunch of major trends right now. So it's, it's bigger than just this little engine that could theme ETF. It's really, to me, a, a huge story and as well a proxy for how fast the economy op opens up. A lot of these smaller traders are betting against the expert class and saying, no, people are going to start flying and moving around faster than you're telling us. And so, again, there's so much at stake here, and it's uh, just utterly fascinating. Okay, Morgan, you're next on my list. First half, big story. What was yours? Yeah, not to be confused with Jets, but uh, we covered the launch of a new ETF, BETS, B-E-T-Z, which is a roundtail sports betting and iGaming ETF. This actually was a, a launch that we predicted on Trillions back in, I think, last March not Madness. We, I, not we, a person named I, Morgan Barna. I was yeah, hoping you, that congratulations. <laughs> I was hoping that we would see a sports betting ETF in part because a lot of these companies um, haven't been public. We just saw DraftKings enter the public markets. Uh, Flutter Entertainment owns FanDuel. So there's now finally enough sort of global exposure in the public market public markets to see and benefit from um, the legalization of sports betting in the U.S. A lot of this is going to be, you know, mobile driven, tech forward, but the launch of the ETF was really historic in and of itself, just given the volume that it traded in the first couple of days after launching. I mean, it was pretty remarkable, 17 million, traded 17 million the first day, I think 50 million the second day. I mean, just kind of a, a huge launch and, you know, hearkening to what Eric just said, a lot of that breadth in uh, traded volume we think came from you know, the fact that the fund, you know, in, in around a week of trading has over 18,000 holders on Robinhood, which is just pretty remarkable, but not shocking when you look at um, the highest held names in Robinhood include, you know, some of Betts' top holdings like DraftKings and Penn. So this is already an audience on Robinhood that is interested and familiar with uh, sports betting companies and names. Um, they may even, some some may even say they're betting on stocks as well. So this is a really good audience for the for the ETF bets. And the way the ETF is designed, I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, it, it's harder to bet on individual names. The way the ETF is set up, it sort of uh, dynamically rebalances. It's got more global names that some U.S. investors may not be familiar with. So the, fa the fact that the ETF has already taken in 70 million also connects with just the uptick we've seen in, in thematic fund flows. I mean, up 80% over last year. So thematic products overall are seeing traction and, and that sort of echoes that. And to bring this to a bigger perspective here, also the distribution, you know, if you're going to launch an ETF right now, you kind of have to appeal to this like older advisor with who has a lot of rich clients. You know, they're not going to buy an ETF on day one. They, they tend to stay away from theme ETFs for the most part. They don't like new ones with low volume. 
it's interesting how Betts was able to bypass that advisor and go right to the do-it-yourself smaller retail investor. And that might be a growing channel uh, of for issuers to just go right there. Um, we also, I Morgan sent me on a TikTok rabbit hole and I looked up ETF and Betts, even though it just came out, there was two TikTok videos from people on there. So I think it, it's also this interesting uh, look at, at younger investors who's seemingly doing their own research and, you know, are willing to buy an ETF that's new and from an unknown, relatively unknown issuer. It's interesting. Well, that speaks to the moment, just going direct to consumer during the middle of the pandemic. I mean, that's sort of cut out, cut out all the middlemen and just go straight to your people. I also think there's a bigger story at play here as well, because I have a lot of friends. I'm in my late 20s who like to bet on sports and stuff like that. And they have a lot of them have picked up trading on Robinhood, as we kind of talked about. There's a lot of people in Robinhood. And I've had friends who I've never talked to about investing who reach out to me about this specific ETF or gaming ETFs, video gaming ETFs specifically, and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of interest coming from, as you mentioned, possibly the Barstool Sports founder, Portnoy, a few different things um, where people are very interested in this specific ETF and getting more into trading. Sarah Fagus, you're in yeah. you're in London still, although it looks like Greece. Tell us about your big story from the first half. Yeah, sure. Um, and if I could just add something really quick from a European perspective on the thematic stuff, I promise I won't say usits, but um, if uh, the thematic stuff is really interesting in Europe because it's attracting a lot of retail investors too. It's very much an institutional market here. And actually, you're seeing a lot of buying on some of these thematic ETFs. So you're actually seeing a new sort of class of investors coming into the market through thematics. But that's not what I wanted to talk about. And what I want to look at is active, non-transparent ETFs. And normally, this probably would have been like one of the biggest stories of the year, like leading up in the beginning of the year. But just given what happened in the market, this sort of kind of got put to the, to the back burner. But there was a couple of ETFs that launched uh, right after the sell-off in March. And now we're, that was by American Century. Now we're seeing more firms sort of join in, Fidelity, like Mason. Um, and so I think there, there's two things that's interesting about this is, one, the timing of it. Um, they sort of avoided some of the big downdraft in March. So their performance out of the gate is, is really good. The, the American Century growth fund is already up 30% um, since it launched. So it's really imperative for them to have good performance out of the gate. Uh, and because th I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on these products, they really have to show that, okay, you went through all this effort to hide your holdings and do all this. Now you actually have to show that there's value to the structure, right? So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on these products to perform really well. And they're off actually to a pretty good start. But I actually think what's happening, so not only the against, they're going up against regular ETFs, they're going up against active ETFs that are fully transparent, like Kathy Wood's funds, right, here. And they're actually doing really well. Kathy at one point had the best performing ETF out there. And so now I actually think that presents a problem for these active non-transparent funds because you're looking at a fully transparent ETF out there that's doing really well. It's almost like, well, why do I need to hide my holdings? You're having one that's, that's doing really well. So I think that if Kathy's funds continue to do really well, so I think it's going to provide, it's going to be a headwind for some of these funds. But um, I think we're going to see more and more now with the market sort of stable coming into the market. So it's definitely going to be something that, that we've watched and I'll continue to watch. And, the, you know, I think they're stuck in the dead zone. I think you've seen them come out between 45 and 65 basis points as a fee. And I don't, it doesn't look like any of them are taking big swings. So unless you're dirt cheap or going to create a shiny object moment by being like a Kathy Wood, I just don't know. Uh, 
uh, it's it's, it's going to be a tough road in my opinion, although it looked like American Century put its own money in there. They have like $200 million now in those. So if they're able to move money from the mutual funds over, uh, they could save assets potentially for themselves. But I don't know about grassroots. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I'd probably take the under on it. It's actually seeing like real demand from clients outside of just money being moved from, from the firms themselves in it. So, Tom, when you think about this topic, what are you what are you most looking for in the second half? Um, for this, it's going to be they have to really prove their value prop. Like Eric said, they're more expensive. They're going through all this to hide their holdings. Um, they really have to. I mean, it's going to it's gonna, they're going to really have to show that we are by doing this, we're, we're adding more value than even the ETFs that are out on the market, because I think there, there's just a lot of hurdles they need to get off of. And it'd be interesting to see who else comes into the market. So you have American Century. They're obviously a big name. Fidelity is a huge name. Um, so I, I'd be willing to see who else gets gets brought into the market here. And I think they're going to be looking, obviously, what these first entrants are doing. I sort of gauge if some of these other bigger firms are going to, you know, some a lot have been filed, but I think also market timing plays a, a role here, too. There was like three ETFs launched in March. Then in April, all these new ETFs started launching, including these active ones. So um, it, it's also probably an interesting like sentiment uh, gauge, too, to see, hey, do they maybe think that the market has stabilized here? And that's why they're, they're starting to roll out some of these products. Support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. What's ahead for the next 25 years? Could it be flying cars, neural implants, electric planes? No one knows for sure, but one thing's for certain. You can gain access to that progress with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, let's use this opportunity to transition into a second half preview. So uh, we're in the locker room drawing up plays. Uh, James, I'm going to start with you. What, what's the second half look like? Yeah, so this is something that I've been tracking for the past couple months. We obviously are constantly tracking where money's going in, in the asset management industry, mutual funds, ETFs. And the big thing that jumps off the screen is the money that went into money market funds in the first half. Um, so basically, everyone likes to say cash in the sideline. I would, I would argue the term is overused, but right now there's more cash on the sideline than um, there virtually ever has been in the, well, not ever has been, but since 2012 and 2008 by different measures. So you look at this, we, see, we saw $717 billion went into money market funds in March, $410 billion went into money markets in April. It slowed down, but there were still inflows in May at $42 billion. Um, and what this comes up to is there's over five, there's $5 trillion in money market securities, which to be what money market securities are, they're basically cash, commercial paper, repurchase agreements, these short-term overnight type vehicles, very short-term vehicles. And if you look at it as a percentage of the S&P 500 market cap, right now it's at about 21, it was at 21% at the end of April. It's now around 19 because the equity market has come back a little bit, but that's the highest level we've seen since 2012. 
And then if you look at it as a percentage of mutual fund assets, uh, it's at the highest level since 2011. So it was up at 23% uh, last we checked. Um, so there's basically a lot of cash on the sidelines. Now, I should also caveat this with what happened in March. The part of the reason why there were such big inflows is all these corporations have these bank loans, revolvers. They're kind of like credit cards, essentially, for corporations with the bank. And they drew down that money. So they took in billions of dollars. And rather than sit on cash, they put it into these money market funds. So that's a big chunk of where this money's coming from. But still, that's still money on the sidelines. Um, and there, there's money to be deployed. Also, on ETFs alone, we, there's a lot of, um, there's a few ETFs that focus on treasuries. So one to three month treasuries, less than one year treasuries that are basically similar to money market funds in a, in a sense or the way they're being used. They've also seen significant inflows. So there has been a lot of money on the sidelines. And if you look at fixed income and equity flows, equity flows have been muted. I mean, the, the equity market is obviously up 20% in April and May. And we haven't really seen anything significant on the equity side of ETF flows. The only area that's been significant has been sector bets. So there's definitely a lot of money flowing into specific sector ETFs, as Tom wrote about last month um, on a research side. But fixed income has taken in a lot of money. But again, equity's just been kind of muted. It's been not, there's nothing really happening on that side. And let me just, uh, this is an important issue because no, no flows into equity ETFs is unusual for a rally. And there's a couple theories. There's portfolio rebalancing, there's taxation, there's maybe other opportunities. But I got I mean, Tom's been covering this the most. I do find myself a little dumbfounded that there hasn't been at least a healthy amount of flows given the rally. It's up what markets up 35% since the low in, in March, right? It's definitely a little odd. Like James said, a lot of it, some of it's just shifting, but still, like you're just going from a broad sector to like a specific sector ETF or from like S&P to like tech, but net net, there's no new flow. So I think that's really interesting, right? There's not actually new money coming into the market. So, um, you know, I think that the, it's very odd to see the market rally so much, not have flows sort of a follow up behind it. Yeah. And there was, there was 9 billion that went out of equity ETFs in May. So the market was going up and we saw outflows and we have this one chart that we like to show every year flows tend to pick up when the equity market does well. So for to have a breakdown in that relationship is pretty significant. These ETFs like VU, which tend to have drip, drip retail money coming in, I think they're more in models. And I think the models all had signal shifting to fixed income when the Fed was going to start buying those bond ETFs. So I think that's when you saw uh, some of that too. So I think sometimes these ETFs that were tended to be always like just used directly by advisors are getting more and more in these models which we discussed, by the way, in the last episode with Tim Clift of InvestNet, if you're interested. Okay, Eric, your second half preview. Yeah, it's on ESG, which when we did the Hester Purse interview with the SEC, you called me an ESG hater. And then Magnus cut out my response, which didn't make it on the final cut, which was I'm not a hater per se. I'm just a, I'm a realist. Like I'm not anti-ESG. I'm just anti-nasty surprise. And I'm also anti-hype and bias. And there's a lot going, a lot of that all in this ESG soup. So I'm always watching ESG. Look, when I talk about the bias, when you look at the, the articles on ESG recently, all of them will say record flows into ESG. And it's true. ESG have taken in uh, $13 billion this year, and they took in $8 billion last year. Both of those are records, right? So it's a ton of money for a category that didn't have much going on before last year. And I think most people know this, but they just don't say it. Most of that money, the majority, like in the case of this year, about 10 billion of it, is in 
is because of two investors, uh, one big institution in Europe, as well as BlackRock. BlackRock has moved, after Larry Fink had that big announcement earlier in the year, they moved ESGU and a couple others into their models that advisors use. And that is responsible for most of them. So yes, that money still counts. And believe me, in the Terradome, I give credit where it's due. It, it does count. I just think people are presenting this as millennials have ESG fever. That, you know, that's what they want. I just don't think that's true because the grassroots flows just aren't there. Like if you take the Vanguard ETF, ESGV, it's taken in $700 million this year. Eh. Or how about SPYX, the S&P Fossil Fuel Free ETF? That's $100 million. That's more uh, where the market is. And I think it's just underwhelming again. And I also think this Robinhood situation has shown us that, if anything, millennials and Gen Z are much more into trading than they are into ESG. And I think people might have underestimated how much millennials want to change the world with their investments. Further, ESGU, which is the one that BlackRock put in the model, to me, this is probably the biggest, uh, the biggest hope for ESG. Because remember what GSLC, the Goldman Sachs multi-factor ETF, did to Smart Beta? It moves a lot like the S&P, and it only charges nine basis points. So an advisor has a story, but they don't have any tracking error to worry about. ESGU is kind of that for ESG. It charges 15 basis points, and it tracks pretty closely to the market. It's virtually going to give you similar returns. It, it, but here's the thing. You're not going to really, I mean, how much change are you really going to infect here? Because ESGU holds Exxon and Chevron. It has smaller weightings, but they still own them. Most people who want ESG, to me, are looking to not hold those companies. So I think this is part of the issue with ESG. Why are you investing in it? Are you going to be happy if it doesn't you know, match the market's performance? Uh, but to me, ESGU, which is you know the one that to me is, uh, you could replace your S&P 500 exposure with this or your equity, and you wouldn't be that much different than the market. So I think for advisors, that's a big deal because they don't really want to have to explain to their clients why they've underperformed. Plus, they also want everything cheap, and this one's 15 bips. So there's, a, there's some bright spots here. Don't get me wrong. I just think relative to the media hype, if you look at a chart of ESG mentions, it just keeps going up and up and up and up. The media really wants this to be a thing. And I just, you know, what's that quote in Mean Girls? Like, you're trying to make fetch happen and it just won't. I think that what he's talking about, ESGU, there's also SMPE in the U.S., in, on the U.S. exchanges, which is basically S&P 500 ESG index. And what these indexes do, that there's, there's two ways to look at this. You can either be inclusionary or exclusionary as far as I'm concerned, and there's like a scale. So if you're exclusionary, you're excluding the worst actors. If you're inclusionary, you're going after the, the companies that are meeting these, these specific criteria. They're doing everything they can. But the problem in some of this is like there's, some of these companies are so big, they're bound to have issues. So the, be, the way that some of these other ones are doing it, the exclusionary factor where they're just excluding I don't know, controversial weapons, tobacco, and a few other things. But then the rest of it is they're trying to give you the same risk return characteristics as the market, but just taking out the things that are the least ESG, the things that are performing the worst by sector. So you're going to get some oil exposure and just get rid of the companies that are the worst on the ESG scale, things like that. And that gives you a similar risk return profile. And you could argue that it's, it's basically a risk metric. You're taking out the risk from environmental issues or social issues or governance issues or try to limit them as much as possible. And these funds are outperforming the S&P 500 since their launch in many cases. So it's, it's showing that it's working. And it's, I think that's where there's going to be a lot more interest. We've seen, as Eric mentioned with GSLC and the smart beta world, 
the, the real watered down factors, the one that give you a lot of beta, but give you a little bit of the factor, the ones that advisors like the most. So I think these are the most, the, the, I'm the most bullish on this aspect of the category for gaining significant assets. That said, isn't like when you think about advisors doing that, that's very different than I want to change the world. I mean, how many people who go into ESG thinking I'm going to clean up my portfolio, then you're like, oh, this fund holds Exxon, by the way. This is where I completely agree with you. I, I don't think like ESG investing is the way to change the world. I think that you can benefit from the things that are going to happen with governments and regulations and all these different things by avoiding the worst actors. But I don't think just investing in a company is going to make them more ESG friendly. Like theoretically, it could happen. Um, I mean, I would argue that you're probably better off getting a bunch of money investing in the worst actors and trying to invoke change via proxy votes, potentially. Like, there's all the different ways to do this. I just think the most viable asset gathering wise, productive wise for a portfolio is the exclusionary route where you're getting a similar return characteristic to the market. All right, Morgan, second half is upon us. What's your pick to watch? I'm watching small caps. I think we're going to see whether sort of a rotation in equity leadership actually happens and holds. And I, I want to see whether you know ETF investors are ahead of of a rotation and sort of believe that that a small cap recovery could be part of um, another leg in a rally here. And I think, you know, we've seen hedge funds and other bigger speculators roll back short positions starting in mid-May. Those tend to be a bit leading. Um, and so now Russell 2000 futures are sort of net long. Um, we've seen, I mean, you know, high yield spreads are still relatively high, which is when small caps tend to do better. Um, and so, just looking at the size factor within the Russell 1000, we've seen our strategy team sort of cite mid single digit gains um, attributable to the factor in the past couple months. Um, I think that might be encouraging some some flows. And then, you know, they've also, our, you know, our, our strategy counterparts have pointed out, you know, the way that small cap is continuing to trade at fundamental discounts. And, and you know, I think the next most op optimistic investors are looking at small caps. So, you know, IWM has actually seen, um, you know, it's a sort of representative ETF tracking the Russell 2000. It's actually seen pretty sizable outflows. And that may be um, because of how heavily it's used tactically, but it's gotten, you know, small caps in general have seen offsetting inflows um, to the category. And some of those leaders are VB and SPSM. So it's just other small cap uh, ETFs that are kind of leading this. But um, Tom wrote recently about that the smart beta small cap segment ha has taken in really pretty strong flows in June. I think it's 1.6 billion as, as of today. And uh, Invesco's equal weight um, RSP fund is kind of leading that category. So we're watching that for the rest of the year. And just one thing on the small caps versus large caps, uh, the large caps are dominated by these giant companies. If they ever try to break up some of these companies or there's just a shift in the way people shop, I mean, you could see small caps. I mean, they've just been down and out for 10 years. And, you know, nothing stays down and out forever. Um, maybe small cap value, which, by the way, a lot of people are asking, is there a bankruptcy ETF because of Hertz and stuff? And I think small cap value is as close as you can get <laughs> or micro caps. But uh, IJR, I think, is the small cap value in case anybody is interested in that. I mean, it's put that up against S&P 500. It is just like it is brutal. What, what's the ticker for a bankruptcy ETF? Bust. <laughs> if they had one, yeah, I think. Yeah. Tom, bring us home. What's your second half pick? What I'm watching, and because we're going into the summer now, um, normally the summer 
it's not a secret. It's, it's the market's really quiet. ETF trading is really quiet during the summer months and the third quarter. It's usually like this, the lowest quarter for trading. But I think this year is going to be very different. You have everyone continue to work from home through the summer. You probably have a lot of vacations that either got cut short or they're just doing, you know, staycations now. You have the first full summer where like every platform is commission-free, ETF trading, Robinhood, Schwab, all of those. I think this is going to be a really busy summer for ETF trading. Um, some of the stuff that Morgan mentioned with the interest in thematics, uh, I think we're, I think the third quarter and the summer months are going to punch way above their weight uh, this year just because of the, the environment that we're currently in with every, just more people working from home and just more attached to their screens this year. What happens if there's a, a big second wave? Uh, then I th- we'll definitely see, I mean, I think we'll see just a, a lot of market volatility, but I think we're definitely going to see more uh, ETF trading. And the fourth quarter is normally really busy anyways, but I think this second half of the year is going to be really, is going to put up some pretty big numbers for ETF trading. All right, Tom, James, Morgan, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Morgan at mbarna 6 James at J-S-E-Y-F-F, and Tom Serafagus at T. Serafagus. Good luck spelling that. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.